Well, good morning, everybody. That message through all those worship songs was more than a moving reminder of why we are here today. In fact, it's a great reminder of why we meet every week to the believer in Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed One, every day. It's an opportunity to celebrate the Jesus' birth. It's an opportunity every day to celebrate His life. And I believe every day is an opportunity to celebrate the death and Jesus' glorious resurrection. Most of us in this room today can personally testify to that resurrection life uh, imparted to you, not as a theory, but as a reality in your life. Uh, within you is a living hope and is the substance. The Bible says that faith is a substance. When you have the substance of God in your life, you know that it that uh, eternal life, and you know that you possess what you do. First uh, John chapter 5 and verse 13, and John writes, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. My question to you today, and for those even listening online, is do you possess that assurance of eternal life? But today specifically, even the world is somehow forced to even stand still and acknowledge Christ, to acknowledge Calvary and the cross of Jesus Christ. And each time we, in fact, write the date, we are acknowledging Jesus' life. We're acknowledging his death and his resurrection. And he is the man of the millennium in every millennium. When we look at the older buildings as we walk down the main street of Charters Towers, we see the letters AD on the big old facades. And that, of course, is from the Latin Anno Domini, in the year of our Lord. And Calvary's cross is still the center of history. I don't believe that the somber mood of this day does us any harm. I think a reverential fear of God needs to return again to our communities. A reverential fear of God is what often preserved our communities. A lock on a window or a door to our home was often most not required as there was the unseen hand of guidance upon our conscience and in a social awareness. I recall there was a time when I didn't even take the keys out of my car, my old HK Holden, and uh, used to leave it wherever it was with the keys in it. Mind you, at some point in time, my old HK was stolen. But uh, my prayer is that this region, again, would sense that awareness of God in a tangible way, and that the peace of heaven would be our portion. Amen? Amen. I'd like to take you back some three and a half thousand years to the land of Egypt, to the land of the pharaohs and to the land of the pyramids, slaves and the lash. Egypt was at that time the world power of the day. And the children of Israel, they served their Egyptian taskmasters and they were in that land for 430 years, says the book of Acts. But the book of Exodus chapter 1 describes a period when there were taskmasters over the people and to afflict them and to serve with rigour made their lives bitter with hard bondage, and they cried out for a deliverer. In the edict of Pharaoh, the first book, he says, Now therefore, this is in Exodus 4, 9, Now therefore, behold, the cry of the children of Israel has come to me, and I have seen the oppression, which, which, the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. And God sent Moses to Egypt and to Pharaoh, and the ten plagues ensued, and the night before they left the land, the, the first Passover was instituted, and it's recorded in Exodus chapter 12. And there was a judgment coming upon the entire people that night, 
as an angel of death went over the land. And the people were to take a lamb for each house, a house for a lamb and a lamb for a house. And its blood was to be put on the doorpost and the lintels of the doorway. And in Exodus 12, 5, it says, The lamb was without blemish, and it was perfect, and it was innocent. And there was a law of God which predated time. And the law was that the innocent would suffer for the guilty, so that the guilty would go free. To take a lamb for a house and a house for a lamb and put the blood on the lintels and the doorpost was a, a suffering, perfect and innocent lamb so that the guilty could go free. I'd like, if you would, if you brought your Bibles, to turn to Exodus chapter 12. And I'd like to read then some verses uh, from verse 12 and 13. And so it says, For I will pass through the land of Egypt. This is God speaking. And on that night I will strike all the firstborn of the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt. I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. It goes on to say in verse 13, Now the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. I'd like to read that again. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And the plague shall be on you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt and shall not be upon you. Going straight on then to verse 22, and it says, You shall take a bunch of hyssop. Hyssop speaks in the, in the Bible as, as of being faith. And dip it in the blood that is in the basin and strike the lintel in the doorpost with the blood that is in the basin. And none of you shall go out of the door of his house until morning. Verse 23, for the Lord will pass to strike the Egyptians, and when he sees the blood, there it is again, and when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and not allow the destroyer to come into your houses to strike you. What an amazing section of scripture there. And there are two, tr uh, two truths here that I'd like to bring out. And the first is, number one, and when I see the blood. And when God looks at you, he doesn't look at our good deeds, he doesn't look at our morals, he doesn't look at our ethics, manners, politeness or virtues. And so too it was with the Egyptians. The God says, and when I see the blood. And the second is, now the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And the, the point here is that God can and meet you wherever you are. And every year since that last night in Egypt, the Jewish people have been celebrating and remembering Passover for 3,500 years. Can you believe it? They're up until this point of day, uh, point in time, 3,500 years they've been celebrating Passover. And so the book of Exodus records a national redemption where a whole people group were redeemed from Egypt a worldly system to God to be his inheritance. And so too it is with you and I. We were redeemed from the world, the flesh and the devil and brought into God's kingdom. Solomon described the redemption of the Jewish people in 1 Kings 8.51 and he uses some good language. He says, For they are your people and your inheritance whom you brought out of Egypt, out of the iron furnace to be your inheritance. We were taken out of the miry clay and uh, out of the flood, out of the fire and out of the iron furnace. You and I, when 
God called us out of the world system, literally brought us out of an iron furnace. Moses was a redeemer to the people, but when you think about it, he was not the redeemer. In fact, he was a shadow of the redeemer yet to come. Throughout scripture and throughout the periods and seasons of time, there have been many redeemers for God, but there is only one redeemer. And he prophesied before the people entered the promised land. This is Moses in Deuteronomy 18, 15. He says, the Lord your God, he will raise up for you a prophet like me from your midst, from your brethren, him you shall hear. Abraham even spoke before Moses some 500 years before. And in Genesis 22, 8, it says, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. In verse 14, the Lord will provide. Amazing, uh, amazing scripture, because it was, in fact, all these years later, that on those same mountains of Moriah, that Christ himself will die on Calvary. But the Lord will provide, and provide he did. And there are some over 456 prophecies in the Old Testament pointing to the ultimate redeemer to the nations of the earth. Not just redeeming a person, not rede just redeeming a people group, but every people group, every tribe, and every nation. And here we are, enter center stage, Jesus of Nazareth. But he was born in Bethlehem. And, that, and uh, why is that uh, significant, you may ask? I know a little bit of Hebrew. I don't profess to know a lot, but I know some. And I can say that every word in the Hebrew is significant. And so Jesus is born in Bethlehem, but why is that significant? Bethlehem in the Hebrew is pronounced Bethlehem, which means house of bread. And so Jesus announced himself the first time in uh, John 6.35, he says, I am the bread of life. And so he was born in Bethlehem, the house of bread. What is also significant was also in the town in which all the temple lambs prepared for sacrifice, where were they raised? Well, none other than in Bethlehem, the place where Jesus himself was born. And he was the perfect lamb. And his introduction to his earthly ministry by John the Baptist is another indication of the Lamb of God. And he says in John 1.29, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And a couple of verses later in John 1.36, Behold the Lamb of God. And he was pointing, John the Baptist, pointing to Jesus as any authentic ministry does. I found that a great sign of good ministry is it never draws attention to itself, but always points people to Jesus. And I pray that in this church, we will always point people to Jesus. It is not the denomination that saves you, but it is Jesus Christ. Jesus said of himself early in his ministry, his purpose clearly given before any expectation or pressure came to bear. In John 3.14, you've got to bear in mind, this is the beginning of Jesus' ministry. And he said of himself, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness... Even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Verse 15, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Living in the Roman world, everybody knew, and I mean everybody knew what it meant to be lifted up. Of course it spoke of the cross. Of course it spoke of the uh, terrible execution method of style to die, to die by crucifixion. 
And everybody knew what crucifixion was in the ancient Roman world. Kilometer after kilometer on the entrance to the Damascus gates were thousands of people who were crucified on the entrance to that city. In John 3.16, it goes on to say, For God, this is Jesus speaking, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Whoever, that makes room for every single one of you here today and for those who are listening online, whoever, that could be you here today. But why would Jesus say that but to clearly demonstrate not only his purpose and humanity's need but also Jesus' willingness to go to the cross on our behalf. He was the ultimate innocent suffering for and on behalf of the guilty. With a focus this day on Jesus and the work of the cross, the willing sacrifice who shed his blood, in that scripture, God's motive is described to us, and of course, it is love. And we know that the very substance of God himself is love. God's method of lifting up his son, of course, was the cross. And God's manner of saving perishing humanity was for man to believe in his son, So there we have the motive, the method, and the manner. But why? John 3.17 tells us, For God didn't send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him would be saved. Oh, it's a wonderful message, the gospel. You say, you're sounding a bit radical, Jeff. But the answer is, the gospel is radical. And the love of God is even more radical. Between Matthew 26... I'd like if you would take in your Bibles and go to Matthew 26 and the close of that chapter. (coughs) Excuse me. And we see in Matthew 26, 75, that is the close of that chapter. And chapter 27, Jesus was held in the cistern or the dungeon below Caiaphas' house, who was the chief priest. Now, the house of Caiaphas, also known as the church this day, I visited Israel in 2016, and I visited what was called Caiaphas' house, but it's known as the church of St. Peter in Galakuntu. And uh, Galakuntu is a, is, a, is a word in Latin which means cock's crow in Latin. And of course, this is where Peter denied Christ three times, and then the cock crowed. And so the church is even known by that. But it's located on the eastern slope of Mount Zion, just outside the old city of Jerusalem. The old city of Jerusalem is actually quite small, and you can comfortably walk around it in about an hour. But this church is just outside the old walls. (coughs) The ancient dungeons, or cisterns, are carved out of the limestone rock And they still remain intact beneath the church built over the side of the house long ago destroyed. When you understand that much of Israel is all limestone, its history is literally written in rock. And so you can visit all these places mentioned in the Bible without trouble at all. And I have been into the cistern that held Christ until dawn before Jesus was handed over to Pilate, before the day of the crucifixion. You see, a cistern was a hewn out rock and it used to fill with water. So under homes around, around Jerusalem, you would find that there are water cisterns. And in Caiaphas' own home, 
the cistern was emptied of water and was used as a dungeon. I've got a picture up here and it shows you a hole in the ceiling. And so people were lowered into the cistern and formed a, a very, very good prison cell. And uh, when in, in that fully enclosed water system, it gives a, a new meaning to the psalm. And I'd like to go to Psalm 88, verse 1 to 7. And uh, when, I was, when I was visiting Israel and I went to Caiaphas's home, and I went down into that dungeon below Caiaphas's home, or what was Caiaphas's home, and here is the cell which historians believe where Jesus himself was uh, uh, incarcerated before he was handed over to Pilate the next morning. There were no stairs, and you can see by a hole there he would have been lowered into that very, very damp and very, very dark world of being in that system. With that picture in mind, I'd like now just to read a couple of verses from Psalm 88, written by David. But as you can see, there are a prophetic word which Jesus would have felt and even maybe even spoken. O Lord God of my salvation, I have cried out day and night before you. Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry, for my soul is full of troubles and my life draws near to the grave. I am counted with those who go down to the pit. I'm like a man who has no strength, adrift among the dead, like the slain who lie in the grave, whom you remember no more, and who are cut off from the hand, from your hand. You have laid me in the lowest pit, in darkness, in the depths. Your wrath lies heavy upon me, and you have afflicted me with all your ways. Oh, it brings a new meaning to, those, that, to that psalm when you picture this dark and damp hole underneath Caiaphas' home where Jesus was kept. And so in Matthew's account of the crucifixion, chapter 27, Jesus was brought, he was brought before the authorities on trumped-up charges of sedition against the Roman rulership. And the crowd that only days before was singing Hosanna in the highest and lay, laying out palm branches, were now crying out, crucify him, crucify him, after enduring 40 lashes minus one and the callous treatment of undisciplined soldiers. It's amazing, isn't it? People were fickle in those days and they still are fickle. One day you're the greatest hero and the next day you're the greatest, you're the greatest villain. And there they was, uh, the callous treatment of undisciplined soldiers. And part of that treatment, the soldiers would have grabbed their timber rods and they would have jarred them against Jesus' knees, against his hip bone, against his shoulder blade, and hitting their rods on his bone. And with that, he would have begin to begin to uh, bleed internally, profusely, and hemorrhaging on the inside. And as Jesus bled on the inside, so... Our transgression and iniquities, which are internal sins, were also forgiven. Jesus bled externally, but he also bled internally, because we, ha we too have sin that nobody else sees. Isaiah's prophecy, given 700 years before the event, describes that Jesus was beaten to the degree that he was no longer recognizable as a man. And I encourage you, as you leave uh, the service and the meeting this morning, that you read both 
Isaiah 52 and chapter 53. Traditionally, most people only read chapter 53, but before chapter and verse were ever put into your Bibles, you will see that chapter 52 leads straight into 53 and gives it more vivid context and detail. But when did all this occur to Jesus? It's a great question. Because in the light of eternity, you can see on the night before their freedom, the first Passover was instituted. On the same night, 1,500 years later, Jesus was in the pit, in the dungeon of Caiaphas, home in bondage, beaten, a sinless, spotless lamb, so that you and I could go free. Where was Jesus on the night of Passover? He was in this pit here, so that you and I could go free. Once again, the innocent suffering for the guilty so that the guilty could and can go free. When did Jesus die? I say again, it was Passover and so fulfilled all prophecy that he was the Passover lamb for all the world. The title of my message this morning is, Oh, Jesus Christ, our Passover lamb. And when he stood before Pilate and opened not his mouth, You were on his mind. When he was beaten and flogged, you were on his mind. When he walked the Via Dolorosa carrying the vile instruments of death, you were on his mind. When he was lifted up upon that cross and spikes were driven into his hands and feet, it was not those crude spikes that held him to that splintered, covered timber. It was his love for a sin-sick world. And you and I were on his mind. When he cried out with his last breath, in his finished, you were on his mind. And in John 19.30, and bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. Jesus' life was not taken from him. It was given up. He could have called 12 legions of angels, that is 12, 72,000 angels at a moment's notice. You see, Jesus was meek and it does not mean weak. Jesus being meek means that he had all power. He had all authority at his disposal. And yet in the midst of all that incredible pain, all that incredible anguish and torment, And vitriol literally spewed out over him. He gave up his spirit. He didn't call down those 12,000 or 72,000 legions of uh, 12,000 legions of angels. But he exercised total restraint. The question that you and I need to ask of ourselves, and I believe I'm speaking to some people even online, is what is our response to this compelling act of divine love incomparable? The testimony of the centurion says it all. He understood the skies went dark and black. A storm was brewing. Jesus died on the cross and there was an earthquake. Rocks split in two and dead people were raised from their grave. The man who witnessed it, possibly the man who put a spear in his side, He said, truly, this was the Son of God. You see, Calvary's cross is still the center of history. And it's still the center of our faith. 
And your life and mine will rise or will fall on what we do with the one called Jesus. We will all rise or fall on what we do with the blood of Jesus Christ. And we will all rise or fall on what we do with the cross of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, Calvary's cross, still the centre of history and still the centre of our faith. Jesus is still the Passover lamb and his blood washes away our sin. My only word in closing this morning is that I say, put your faith in Jesus Christ. For the blood of Jesus Christ has never lost its power. And the cross, although empty now, the grave is bare. But Jesus Christ is the resurrected Son of God, now seated at the right hand of the Father. I pray in Jesus' name, accept Jesus Christ as your Lord. Father, we thank you, Lord, for this morning. I pray, Lord, that you bless and strengthen this people. As Father, we take time to remember the ultimate sacrifice and price that you paid, that we would have freedom and resurrection life. In Jesus' name.
Jesus.